Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bercher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 120 after a three-episode run about sex. Today, I want to talk about I Don't Know. The title of today's episode is I Don't Know. A lot of times, I will make the joke, tongue-in-cheek, that I Don't Know are the three most powerful words in the English language. And I honestly don't understand why we don't say I don't know uh, more often. Relatedly, uh, I was wrong. Um, It is so funny how afraid we are of not knowing something or being wrong. When if you think about what that means, why should we know everything? Why should we be right all the time? That's insane, right? So it's like everybody holds themselves up uh, to this perfectionist level, and it's just not fair. I mean, it's not fair to ourselves. It's not fair to each other. And it's, it's really time to let go of whatever identity and attachment we have to this idea that we know things. And before I get into this episode, I'm kind of, this is related, is uh, it's two, 50% of my kids' birthdays today. I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old and a 6-year-old. Uh, but quite remarkable. And um, as I reflect on the 21-year journey that has been parenting in my life for now, 40% of my life I've been a parent, I don't know is a pretty good place to be. I don't see how you can parent for almost half your life and not feel like you don't know Jack. Uh, and so that's where I'm at. And where this comes from, uh, for me anyway, the, my first experience with this, I was probably about my oldest daughter's age and I was working at a pet store and I had this boss that Carlos Castaneda would call a petty tyrant, you know, just a a bear of a man and um, very hard on people. Uh, I, he used to publicly humiliate us in front of customers if we were doing something that he didn't like it was but it was a he was a loving man at the same time really complicated uh but it you know none of it really mattered the things he called me out on I really learned from and, and one of the things that he taught me was to say I don't know because for whatever reason the kids that worked at the pet store and we were all young you know 16 to 25 maybe we all felt an, an attachment to an, a partial part of our identities were experts at some pet, right? I managed the fish section. Um, there was a general manager that ran the whole store that knew something about all pets. I knew things about fish. Some people had dogs and anything. We all had our little expertise, right? And we, what's interesting about it is none of us knew what to say if we couldn't answer a customer's question. It's like, because we were, in some position of being a pseudo expert or having some knowledge on a subject, then that meant we had to know everything. It was so weird how working up at a pet store for a couple weeks, having some regular customers ask you questions. Why would the assumption be that you knew the answer? And why were you afraid to not know the answer? But we all did it. We all would do this thing where somebody would say, what if my iguana farts and the room is 80 degrees, is it going to smell? You know, instead of saying, I don't know, we all would do some weird combination of, well, 
here's what I know about that. And, you know, we would either outright make some shit up or do like the politician thing where we would sort of tiptoe the, 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 the area of the question away from the subject. Like we'd start talking about something we did know about iguanas. Uh, it was so weird. And so I, everybody was at some point, I assume I was publicly humiliated in front of multiple customers by my boss and basically told to say, don't make shit up if you don't know the answer to the question. There's nothing wrong with not knowing an answer, but don't make something up. You're going to make it worse. You know, like, can I put this medicine in my fish's tank because it hasn't been eating? You know, you may, in effect, tell your customer to do something that kills their fish. And maybe that's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But saying you don't know is a way better. And why are we afraid of that? Why are we afraid to not know? This is way more than an episode, but I'm going to go off a little bit for 15 minutes, following up on some ideas that I sort of sketched down on paper. And so the first thing we have to do is revisit episode one of Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom about truth and facts and, and opinions. And remember, I think in this episode or one of the early ones, the way I look at the world is that we are constrained as biological organisms by the ability of our sensory apparatus, our nervous system, our brain, our spinal cord, our senses, our our tongue, you know, our taste, sight, touch, hearing, and smell, and maybe intuition. I'll go a little bit further out and say there might be more. There might be some energy field type senses that we have that we have zero to minimal development of. Uh, we are limited by receiving messages from the world through those sensors. Are, are they good? Yeah, they're awesome. Are they the best in the biological world? Probably not, but arguably maybe. But are they it? No. And the, uh, the example I used in that is that if you look at an insect's vision, they perceive elements of the light spectrum that we don't outside of the narrow visible spectrum. You know, we think of light and color based on a very narrow part of a wavelength of light. The energy is just a narrow section of it that we see and we call the whole world. Well, there's a whole lot more out there like x-ray, infrared, you know, other parts of the light spectrum that we don't perceive. And so our assumption is, well, that's not real. That's not, it doesn't exist. You know, rather than saying, I don't know, or I can't see ultraviolet light, we'll just sort of pretend that that's not relevant to the information that we can glean from the environment. And that's my point, is that our senses limit our ability to know. So I look at every sort of relationship between more than one object as being potentially a stimulus, sending a message, or energy coming from, and then a receptor energy coming toward. You know, you got two objects. They can both act as receptors and stimuli at separate times simultaneously. It doesn't matter, but I sort of, you can break things down into that. And, you know, the world, the sun, in this light example, sends out whatever it does. You can look at that as being a stimulus that can be received by some receptor. We have some great receptors that receive some great stimuli from the environment, but we don't have them all. So we don't know it all. We, and as I said in that episode, there's a, a little a circle of information. We call it the internet now. I'm just kidding. But it's what we know. It's what we, we, we can 
feel with our receptors, we can receive these stimuli from the environment. And then we've secondarily sort of converted them into some meaning, right? Because, you know, we don't really hear, right? Our eardrum receives vibrations of sound waves and interprets that through our brain and some parts of our nervous system into hearing. And we call it hearing, but we don't actually hear. So it's the same thing with any message, right? We have to interpret it. And so we interpret these stimuli into things we know, whatever that is. Um, the sky is blue, you know, grass is, uh, water is wet. Those are things we know. But as I talk about in that first episode, the tr- it isn't the truth based on our interpretation of it. The truth is the stimuli, but that doesn't really matter. The next field, and this is, you know, science and learning and human growth, is some circle that's bigger, some size bigger than the known, is the unknown. And the assumption is we grow the known circle over time, and so it gets bigger inside of this unknown circle. And who knows, maybe one day we'll know everything there is to know that's unknown. That's a whole nother podcast, right? But there's some differential between what we can perceive and what we can know with those senses and what we already do, which is great. It was something to do, right? Life isn't going to be boring. The place, so a lot of people stop there. And the argument as to whether or not we can know everything or not know everything, whatever. That's a whole different thing. That's probably some subset of philosophy. The most important part of this equation to me is the next circle that is probably infinitely larger than those first two that this episode applies to is the unknowable. And this captures the stimuli that we don't have sensory capacity to receive. There's information going around us all the time that we're unaware of. Now, someday we may kind of figure that out. You know, over hundreds and thousands of years, maybe the unknown gets a little bigger, but the unknowable is always going to be larger. There are always going to be things we don't know, which is forgiveness for saying, I don't know and not knowing. It's completely obvious. How could you say, how could you think you know? You know, that's, that's the stretch. That's the exception to the rule. Actually knowing something is rare. And so we should look at each other with like, well, yeah, we're just, you know, doing our best. And it's, it reminds me, uh, and it's not in my notes, of something that Paul Godola said, that everybody thinks they're right. And it's just funny how this may explain that phenomenon. We think we're right because we're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of what it says about us and what somebody might think of us. Um, uh, or what, how it may, might make us feel. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, think about that receptor and stimulus model, and uh, as well as the things that you don't know about, and 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 sort of normalize it being okay to not know stuff. And 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 for me, I find it incredibly freeing, especially as a parent, to sort of say, I don't know, but let's talk about it. I don't know. That leads to this cool. But what do we know? You know, just like we did in the pet store, but honestly, well, what do we know about this and what might we speculate about? And, you know, what? have some fun with it. Be like, I don't know. You know, I think that iguana farts were actually how they made the atom bomb. And so you really run the risk of your house blowing up and then, you know, have fun with it. Um, that sort of leads to where I am in my personal life, which is learning to communicate better, which I'm going to talk about in the next episode. Uh, because it, I've said this before on the podcast, it should be a bumper sticker for me by now. 
It's amazing to me that any two people can ever have a conversation and both parties walk away feeling that they were completely heard and understood by the other person. There's so many nuances. There's so much room for ambiguity. The English language itself, you know, words mean what you think they mean. I might say red and you're going to picture maroon, but really what I meant was fire hydrant red and we're all over the place. And then we painted the whole house and I'm like, oh my God, that's not the color. Um, And it goes like that for all the words. And it goes like that for our interpretations and that combination of intuition and how literal you are. You know, do you literally interpret somebody's words, you know, like, oh, my God, I'm starving. You, Oh, oh, well, that's terrible. Maybe we can help you get a job and and go back to college. And no, I'm not literally starving. I just mean I'm really hungry. And, and, And all of those little differentials in conversation. So there's all this information sort of floating around in space and we're and we're we're evolved and we've are, are adapted and we have created these senses to receive parts of it and they all had like a different meaning you know for hundreds of thousands of years probably you know we can sort of make this assumption right people say this all the time like it's sort of like this leftover artifact from a couple hundred thousand years when our environmental conditions were different than they are now so you can you know if, if you believe in evolution and sort of natural selection in that time frame you know we probably our brains were probably evolving uh, to meet whatever those needs were. And my only point is that in the last 12,000 years, probably maybe 20,000, a lot has changed. And that might be like 10% of our entire evolutionary time. And then again, probably like in the last, you know, 10 to 1,000 to 2,000 years, a lot changed. And then probably like in the last 100 to 200 years, a lot changed. So we've got these like orders of magnitude shifts where each time period is kind of like equivalent, even though they're much shorter, right? And so a lot has been changing in our environment, in our communities, relative to the conditions under which we evolved all these senses, right? All that to say, I agree with these anxiety people that say, part of our problem is we live in a different world than the one that we uh, are adapted to. And to me, but more than like speculate about what that really is, at the very least, it says... We probably have a lot of like receptors that are almost like looking for stimuli, right? Like, like trying to protect us or help us in some way. It's like we're hypersensitive, like our senses are jacked up. And I think in doing this, we're looking for finding things that maybe aren't there. Right. And so in this in this effort to sort of protect ourselves or help ourselves or continue our evolution or just because that's the way the machinery works, you know, it's like uh, your phone. You know, you may have it set up to get automatic reception if somebody has and gives, gives you a text or gives you an email. I guess this really applies to email. Or you could have it check for your email like every two hours and let you know or you could have it lever check. So it's our our. Our senses are kind of like that, right? We sort of check in with the environment periodically. And if you're doing that a lot, you can sort of see, you know, what, um, what my, my coach would, would call being activated. You know, you're sort of like energized to listen to what's going on around you. And maybe, maybe we don't need to be anymore. And so I think we probably do suffer a lot from our being overly sensitive to an environment that just... Um, either doesn't deliver the same sort of messages or delivers fewer messages to us uh, or the messages that we receive are less comforting or some, something. That whole mishmash, the, the, the juxtaposition of the sensory human 
and the stimuli environment is different than it used to be. And, and I think we're adjusting to that. Over evolutionary time, we might be losing some senses or we might be tuning into some more or, or, or somehow differently. And I don't think that's that big of a deal, but it does lead to a few things that I think can be related and make sense. And this is the idea of being overly stimulated and having uh, overload, if you will. And I think a, a lot of our problems today are related to that, like ADHD, you know, be, being hypersensitive, uh, being anxious, even being depressed, being a workaholic. You know, for me, I suffer from sort of being restless. Why is it so hard to sit in a room by yourself? You know, one of the greatest things I learned to do as a single man after my divorce was go to a restaurant by myself or go to a movie by myself. That's pretty hard. And this all goes toward, um, you know, having luxury time to think about things. You know, we're not as... I, 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 I don't think life was so much harder 20,000 years ago. I really don't believe that model that says we were pooping on ourselves, living in our own filth, and starving 90% of our lives. I just don't think that's true. I think we had some comfort. And I think we were pretty good with, like, downtime. And I think we... Um, um, could sit in a room by ourselves uh, and be peaceful. I think that's something we need to remember how to do. Sometime in the last 500 years or so, maybe 2,000, we forgot how to do that. Maybe 10,000, right? That's uh, a recent loss that we haven't lost the evolutionary capacity to do. Like, it hasn't been enough time for our senses to adjust to that and change. Uh, but I, I really feel like it's something that we need to remember. And this sort of luxury attention... Oh, and that's that's what that's the word that encompasses all of this, right? Our sensory apparatus, our our level of sensory energy to open up and and actively be receiving messages is the attention, and we can regulate this, we can control this, and we can learn to do things with this. And this will be coming up in a future uh, episode that I want to talk about the ideas of attention and awareness and intent and will and how we can sort of use these things to improve our lives. And while luxury might sound good, I really do think it presents to us an opportunity to sort of say, I have, um, I have this attention, I have this awareness, I can do good things with it, I can retrain myself. And this is what a lot of like neuroscience has taught us, right, to live a better life. I think that's great and important and where I want to go in a future arc. But it also the downside to it is it creates like this dissonance, right? This confusion of sort of always being open to stimuli that are not really the ones that you're looking for or that don't line up or that mean different things. And, and, it, and it isn't obvious uh, what, what's going on. You know, like, should I watch another episode of Netflix? I, I guess I should. It keeps coming up. Um, so that the, the, the changes that have happened in the last 500 to 2,000 years uh, overlaid with our sort of... C capacity and behavior of being from 20,000 years ago, even that just doesn't line up and, and it's okay. We're going to adjust to it, but it does create both an opportunity and some degree of confusion. And so all that to say, well, again, why would we think we know all this stuff and why would we be uncomfortable not knowing about things? I mean, it just makes perfect sense. Um, one of the things, the last thing I'll sort of say, well, two things. One is that going back to the idea of two people having a conversation, I think this explains some of that because our, 
if you think about like our senses as grabbing information from the environment in almost a frantic way to sort of help uh, help us live, help us protect us, you know, because there was a time where things were changing so fast or, or whatever reason. I really do think, you know, uh, some of our it's like our our, stim, our senses evolved to maximum capacity and then never relaxed, or they were always sort of hypersensitive, but we had behavioral mechanisms. Uh, and habits to regulate that. I think that's probably the big picture that I'll talk about in the future episode is we probably used to regulate this better and we, and we didn't have the runaway attention thing where we're always looking for stuff. Uh, and so one of the things that I noticed this, what started this line of thinking for me was when I have conversations, particularly with my wife, sometimes I'm just, I find myself filling in the blanks. Like, finishing people's sentences like i find myself sort of like inserting other people's future words into a moment and because i think i know what's going to happen and i'm wrong a lot and it's a waste of time and it's offensive uh frankly um toward other people and i don't like it about myself and so that sort of made me start thinking like why do i do that what's up with that and I think it's an, also an artifact of this overactive nervous system thing that we've just got to learn to relearn to control. And so when in a conversation, in addition to like thinking the words mean different things like the colors, we're filling in the blanks for the other person and drawing conclusions that aren't real or may, certainly may not be real. And again, why would we think we're right? I tell some of my daughters this all the time, like, if you could predict the future, go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> Don't spend your time thinking about what the guy in class is going to say about the stain on your sweater or whatever, right? You don't know. It's so freeing and powerful, right? It's one of those CBT exercises where you, you know, you think you you're a fortune teller or you know, you're a weather person, you you can predict the future. You think you can do it, but you can't, Nemo. <laughs> and so if you if you apply the logic when you find yourself doing that, supposedly you can talk yourself into understanding that that's wrong, and and here's why that's wrong. So um, that interaction, you know, between two people doesn't seem right. And why would it evolve? You know, why would it evolve that we would try to finish other people's sentences when and the only possible reason is, is that's wrong. And that's why I think it's some quirky artifact of evolution, right? It's a, it's a, uh, a dead end that just never disappeared. And, and I think this started, if you go back to my last previous three episodes about love, from the evolution of sexual reproduction and parental care. Remember, some organisms just release their sperm, release their eggs, and that's the end of it. And they just hope they meet and perpetuate all the way up to um, reproduction and parental care like we have in humans where we actually carry around the developing fetus for nine months, which changes the life of an individual dramatically, and then give birth to a child that can't take care of itself in any capacity for at least a year or two. So they're requiring another. I mean, that's massive investment of parental care and then everything in between. And I really think if that's the way you're going to do it, then it becomes imperative that along with that sort of um, reproductive lifestyle of having, you know, something that needs a lot of care 
for a lot of time versus something that requires nothing. You've got to develop some some supporting structure around that. And that's where I think the census came in. Or, you know, started to get more um, severe. And on my daughter's 25th birthday and 17th birthday, I'm reminded of this. You know, when you have a kid, it's like you're energy level gets cranked up because now you're not just taking care of yourself and maybe your loved one loved ones you're taking care of a new part of yourself that you also love it's this new level of like i don't have the word for it you know um activation like my coach says right and so we're jacked up in this mode um and and so i think probably it's not hard to speculate anyway that some of this you know I don't have the word activation as a protective mechanism to ensure that we're receiving as much environmental stimuli as possible to protect our cell, our lives is, is some artifact of sexual reproduction. It's like a downside of it. Right. And again, I'll, I'll sort of repeat because I think it evolved during this episode that this is something that we didn't always do. It's not something we have to relearn. It's just something that we have to remember how to do. And I look forward just to developing that idea in episodes 121 and forward. And having said that, happy birthday. Uh, this is Chris Bircher. This has been Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, episode 120. I don't know. I'll see you guys next week. Take it easy. <laughs>